Great. Happy Independence Day weekend. I'm so glad to see you. Can we celebrate that it's Independence Day weekend today? I think that's a really, really good thing. I'm so thankful to see you. I'm so happy our students are back from their mission trip. Great job on that mission trip. We've been praying for them, and I hope you've been praying for them and will continue to do that. Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles right now to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just always privileged to have the opportunity to, to be a part of our services and, what, and what's taking place today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We begin in verse 1 today, and we'll read it in just a little bit. But today, uh, we're going to continue our walk through 1 Peter. But we begin a brand new sermon series. We've been in uh, one series that we concluded last week. We're starting something brand new because today in chapter 4, with the last two chapters of 1 Peter, we'll finish the summer in Peter. And there's really, in these last two chapters, kind of one connecting thought, one big idea that connects every verse in chapters 4 and 5. And the question is, where do you stand? How, how do you stand for your faith? Where do you stand? What do you stand for? How do you stand for your faith? And it's just an observation that I have that when it comes to where you stand, if you draw the line, because think about this with me for just a second, that everybody draws the line somewhere, right? I mean, you, you've got a place where you draw the line, you, you know, like, I don't know if you remember Popeye, the cartoon character. I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more, right? Everybody draws the line somewhere. If you draw the line with the crowd, then you're going to be celebrated because you're drawing the line with the crowd. And if you draw the line behind the crowd, well, you might just be ridiculed or you're just an old fuddy-duddy or something like that. If you draw the line ahead of the crowd, you might just be a criminal. <laughs> and so everybody draws the line somewhere. But the question that we really need to answer is scripturally, biblically, as a believer, where should I draw the line and what does God's word have to say about that? And as we draw the line where God draws the line, how do we have the strength and the wherewithal, the faithfulness to stand? And I hope that you'll remember with me that what scripture says about where the lines are drawn is that God says, I have drawn your boundaries in pleasant places. And so our goal for this series is for us to recognize that the best place for us to draw the line is to recognize that God has drawn the boundaries for us, and every one of those boundaries is in a pleasant place. And inside the majesty and the glory of those boundaries, those lines that he's drawn for us, we get to run with passion through the grace of God and experience all of his mercy and loving kindness. And there's just so much we have the privilege of being able to be a part of as we draw the line where God draws the line, as we take that stand where God tells us to take the stand. Now, there's a challenge to that because where God draws the line and where we want to draw the line is not always the same thing. And where God draws the line and where culture draws the line is not always the same thing. This weekend, it's Independence Day weekend, and we're going to celebrate, uh, we're just going to kind of commemorate this very polite letter. It might have been the most polite <laughs> declaration of war we've ever seen. And excuse me, Your Highness, you can't tell me what to do anymore. And we send that off to the king, and, and then this nation is created. And I'm so thankful for our nation. I love the idea that even since the founding of our nation, this democratic republic has been called a great experiment. And we're still, hundreds of years later, we're still working out this great experiment. And it doesn't mean that we always get things right, but it does mean that in our trying, we're trying to figure out where do those lines get drawn. And we, it, it's like the founders of our nation drew this line back then, and they said, Your Highness, I want you to understand that we believe that it's better to suffer the mistakes and the misfortunes of a free people than it is to live in the luxurious prison of a tyrant. That's just what we believe. And so from that day forward, we've been trying to work out what it means, this great experiment of this democratic republic. And at some point, our founding fathers said, there's a place I'm going to draw the line, and I'm willing to suffer for it. Even in the document, they said, we're going to pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to this end that it's better to suffer the mistakes and misfortunes of a free people than it is to live in the luxurious prison of a tyrant. They decided that the most extraordinary of matters should be decided by the most ordinary of people. And that's me and you. And so I'm so thankful for those decisions that they made. And we're still working things out, right? We're still a nation that's under construction and the great experiment continues. But did you notice what I said about our founders? And it applies directly to the passage of scripture that, that we're gonna read today. I said they would, they would rather suffer the mistakes and misfortunes of a free people than live in the luxurious prison of a tyrant. 
And so today's passage, it's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, you're going to notice that today's topic is really about as you find that place to stand, as you draw the line where God draws the line, as you realize that those lines are drawn in pleasant places and you can live deep within the grace of God, that sometimes in order to live according to that standard, suffering may be involved. And so that we'll see that. We're going to read the passage in a second, but we'll see that together in just a minute. And there's just some things I want to acknowledge before we get into the, into the message today. The first one is that when Chris decided that he was going to put together the sermon path and who preaches on what, I think he got to 1 Peter and said, okay, we're preaching on suffering. Who could make the congregation suffer the most? I know, we'll have Chad preach. And so... I'm sorry, we're just practicing for you can, you know, you can practice these messages, this, uh, these principles during the message today, so that'll be a good thing. But I, I don't want to, as we preach this, I am going to teach you some principles that are scriptural, they're 100% accurate, they work, they're effective, but I need to, right at the very beginning, before we even read the passage, I need to acknowledge the fact that it's highly likely that there are people in our room today that have suffered in deep meaningful and significant ways. And you've experienced the kind of trauma that, that you're still working out, that God's still doing something in you out. And, and I do not in any way with anything I say today, I don't want to take that lightly. And I don't want you to think that because it's easy for us to say these principles out loud, because every principle we're going to talk about today, there's no rocket science in what we're doing today. Every principle is very easy to say out loud. But I want you to understand that I know in the middle of whatever your suffering or your trauma is, it's really hard to put it into practice. And I want to honor that today. I want to recognize the fact that, that there really is a church of people around you who are willing to walk with you, to weep with those who weep, weep and, to, and to stand with you and to walk with you as you go through whatever suffering that you've been through. Some of you have experienced that firsthand, and if you haven't experienced that yet and you're in the middle of a trauma or in the middle of suffering, even as we preach this message or as we go through this word together today, if you needed to step out of the room just because of something that was said or if you needed to talk to someone, there's people in the foyer right now, you just need to go talk to someone and say, hey, I, wanna, I need to pray with somebody. I need to talk with someone. There's people available, male and female, Maybe we get to the end of the message and you just need to bring something to the altar. There'll be people available to talk with you then if you need that, or you can just come to the altar and pray and just say, God, I need your help. That's okay. But I do want to acknowledge the fact that as we talk about suffering, no matter what your suffering has been, uh, and, and even if you haven't been one of those people who's been through something traumatic or difficult or challenging, I do want to acknowledge the fact that every principle I speak today comes straight from God's word, it's 100% accurate. It is the place where we should draw the line. And as easy as it is to say, it's really challenging to actually put into practice. But it's in the putting of practice, putting into practice these things that, that God makes a difference in our lives, that we're able to make a difference in the lives of others. So I hope, as challenging as these principles may be, that we'll figure out how to, how to put them into practice in our lives. I actually believe that if you figure it out, if you figure out how to put these principles into practice, the quality, consistency, and practice of your life will be significantly better in meaningful ways that will change the way you interact and relate with everyone in your life, and specifically how you relate to those moments of suffering that maybe you experience. So with that in mind, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 and stand with me. We like to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And we do that uh, really because we want to recognize that as we read God's Word, this isn't any man's opinion. This applies to all of us directly. And this is the place where we should draw the line. Once I read the passage, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord. And as an act of worship, you'll respond, praise be to God. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verses 1. We'll end at verse 6. Here's what it says. It says, therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh. Excuse me, let me read that again. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, that it, that is, um, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is where the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You may be seated. So as we think about just that topic of suffering, and I know, wow, that's a, that's a tough topic to have to approach, especially on this weekend when we really just want to celebrate. We want to eat a great hot dog and a hamburger, and we want to celebrate with some fireworks and have a party with friends. And I hope you do that. I hope you do that. I know this is a challenging topic for us to approach, but I want us to honor the topic because in all honesty, this is something that I believe every one of us at some point in our lives will face. And as we talk about the passage together, I want us to put it in context, and we really need to feel something as we do this because it seems like today the words suffering and the words trauma, they get thrown around in ways that maybe make uh, more light of it than we should. And I just want us to recognize that when we talk about trauma and suffering today, it's different than the way they talked about it in the past. And it's really different from the way Peter's talking about it here. Remember a few weeks ago, when we were talking about submission and we talked about submission to the government, I had to point out the fact that when Peter was commanding us to be submissive to one another and to be submissive to government authorities, he was living in a country that was a pagan country. They weren't considered a Christian nation. They weren't trying to, there wasn't a lot of people who were pressing Christian values. Actually, when Peter wrote those words, when he wrote these words, that we should suffer with the same mind as Christ, that we should think about our suffering the way Christ thinks about suffering, he was writing that while being in a nation that was actively seeking to, to, to remove Christians from their society. They were pursuing Christians. They were, they were uh, persecuting Christians. They were capturing them. They were interrogating them. They were torturing them. In some cases, they were killing them. And so when Peter's talking about suffering for your faith, he's not talking about inconveniences. He's not talking, and I think sometimes when we think about suffering for our faith, we're thinking about inconveniences. Like in a few minutes, I'm going to go eat, and I can't eat Chick-fil-A today. It's closed on Sundays, and I feel persecuted because of it. I'm suffering for my faith because I can't have a Chick-fil-A sandwich without pickles. Yeah, that's not exactly the kind of inconvenience that Peter is talking about when he says, arm yourself with this same way of thinking the, the way that Christ thought when you suffer. Sometimes we think we're suffering because we've got to drive a little too far to go to church. Or sometimes we think we're suffering because the air conditioning is a little too hot or the room's a little too cold. Sometimes we think we're suffering because at work someone said, I can't do this or I can do that or they're going to do this in, in spite of my faith. They're going to act a completely different way. And sometimes that does rise to the level of some kind of persecution or some kind of suffering. But in all honesty, Many times the, the suffering that we face in this culture, in this generation, is less about genuine suffering and more about the inconveniences we experience for our faith. And I don't say that to make light of the inconveniences. The, the inconveniences are important and we want to do our best to get those things right. We want to draw the lines in the right places. But I think we need to feel the fact that in the moment this was written, inconvenience was the last thing on Peter's mind. When he was talking about suffering, there was some legitimate hurt that was taking place in the lives of people and in the lives of our churches. There was genuine injustice that was taking place. And he says, when you face suffering, here's how you should arm the way of your thinking. You should think the way Christ thought about suffering. Because one of the things that he notices is that suffering is inevitable. But whether or not it's profitable is determined by the way we think about it. Suffering is kind of inevitable, but, it, but, what, but the way we think about it determines whether or not it's profitable. And when you think about suffering, and specifically the way Peter's talking about suffering, no one understood suffering better than Jesus did. No one understood suffering better than Jesus, Jesus did. The thing to remember about who Jesus was is he was 100% God and 100% man. He's part of that trinity, that mystery that God is the incredible three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which means Jesus, as God, existed long before in eternity past. And at some point in eternity past, where everything is perfect and everything is exactly the way God designed and intended, in eternity past, at some point, even before coming to the cross, Jesus said, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to suffer the mistakes and the misfortunes of a free people to release them from the prison that they're in 
So long before the cross, he made this decision to step into our world. As the all-powerful God of the universe, he decided to humble himself to become a baby and be dependent on the care and the needs and the feeding of people who are broken just like me and you. And the Bible teaches us that he went through every space and every stage of his life as a preschooler and an elementary kid and a student and, and then as a young adult. And then by the time he's 33, the Bible says he suffered the temptation and, and was tempta tempted in every way, just like you and I are, yet without sin. And then he deliberately and willingly laid his life down on the cross at Calvary to secure salvation for you and for me. So nobody understands suffering better than Jesus does. And that very first verse is just so telling. That very first verse is so amazing. It says, do this. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that phrase is kind of an unusual turn of phrase there. It makes it sound like, oh, if I suffer, I'm going to stop sinning. I'll be perfect. It's not precisely what it means. In the original language, what it really means is something closer to you've made a break with sin, like in dating. You've broken up with sin. I've decided I just don't want to go there anymore. And the real idea is that when you arm yourself with, with the way of thinking towards suffering that Christ has, what you've really done is you've set yourself in this place that says, I want to draw the lines where God draws the lines. I want to recognize that these lines are drawn in pleasant places and by the kindness and the goodness and graciousness of God, I can live this magnificent life that has purpose and that has meaning. And as I do that and as I suffer, my attitude becomes this. This is the way of thinking. I would rather die than dishonor God. I've, making, I've made a break with sin and because of that, I'm going to draw the lines where God draws the line. And I'm going to make a break with sin. I've decided I'd rather die than dishonor God. Now, that's not really the pattern and habit of most people, right? That's not the pattern and habit of our world. And I know you and I both, at some point, we've stumbled over the line or maybe we've just deliberately run right past the line of God's graciousness and we've done it because we think we know better. And we've done it because if we're honest with ourselves, it's not just that we sin because we stumble into things. We sin because we like it and we think we know better. And so just kind of in the arrogance and rebellion of our hearts, we just run right past the lines and the pleasant boundaries that God has set. And we just say, God, I'm going to do it my way. But when we come to our senses, when we arm ourselves with a way of thinking like Christ, then what ends up happening is we redraw those lines and we step back into the grace of God and we recognize this idea. It becomes this faithful, almost rebellion towards rebellion. I'd rather die than dishonor God. That's the way Christ thought. It's the reason why he could be tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so it's saying those who suffer are going to do their best to break up with sin, to make a break with what sin is. Now, there are two points that I want to make today, and then there's three questions that I'll ask to help you apply these, these ideas about suffering. And I'll go through the first points, the first two points really quickly. Suffering, suffering, what it does is it reveals your priorities, that's one of the first things that suffering does. Why do we have to suffer? Well, suffering, it reveals your priorities. And here's some examples of that. You know, there's some things that, that are important in our lives, and, and sometimes we're just willing to suffer for those things. Um, I have four kids, and my wife gave birth to those four kids, and she went through something that uh, women that, that are moms, you'll, you'll know this, you, you went through something called labor, <laughs> and it hurts. It hurts a lot. It hurts so much. I can't tell you how much it hurts because I've never been through labor. I really can't tell you how much it hurts. I know Londa tried to illustrate it for me during the birth of our children, and still, I still didn't hurt nearly as bad as she did um, because labor, it just, it just hurts. Yet the women that I know who have been through labor and given birth to these beautiful kids will look at me and go, yeah, I suffered. I suffered through the labor. And look at this. So worth it. Suffering reveals your priorities. In, in a mom's life, I have this priority to be a mom, to take care of my kids, to, to, uh, to help them grow. And there's some things I'm willing to suffer to do that. And at this point in our relationship, Londa will look at me and say, hey, we have four kids. If we're going to have any more, it's because we're buying them because I'm not going through that anymore. See, she just revealed her priority in that moment. I'm just not going to do that. And so suffering, it reveals your priorities. There's some things you're really willing to suffer for, and there's some things, things that you're not. 
the things that you're willing to suffer, do they show you that you're drawing the line in those pleasant places where God draws the line? Suffering, it reveals our priorities. But it doesn't just do that. Suffering refines our faith. Suffering reveals our priorities, but it also refines your faith. You know, when you're trying to sharpen a knife, you take this piece of steel and you start, you start grinding it on a stone and there's these sparks and there's this heat and, and it's just it's knocking off all the rough edges of that piece of steel until you, until you grind that steel down into this razor-sharp edge and suddenly this knife becomes this very useful tool in your hands that without the tension, without the heat, without the suffering of the steel and the, and the difficulty that the rock provides, that knife will never be sharp and never be useful for much more than a blunt instrument. Sometimes suffering refines your faith into that sharp, honed edge that allows you to stand in the right places, to, fin to defend your family and your friends, to stand up in the places that God has for you. The Bible describes itself as, a, as, as living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to discern the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And the sharpness of God's word frequently God brings through the tension of our suffering, because suffering it refines your faith. Remember that story in the, in, in the Gospels where Jesus and the 12 disciples, they've had this really busy day. They've healed people and they've fed people. Jesus has had some bad news and then, then they come over and they, they overcome the bad news and, and they get to the end of their day and Jesus is just exhausted and he just needs a little bit of time on his own. <laughs> and he looks at the 12 disciples and he says, hey guys, I want you to get in the boat and I want you to go to the other side of the, of the lake. And, uh, and once you get there, I'll catch up. <laughs> I always wondered what, how did they think he was going to catch up because, you know, it's not like you can catch the subway to get over there. But uh, so here he is. He's saying, you guys get in the boat and, and I'll catch up. And you remember, they got in the boat. They did exactly what Jesus said. And while they're in the boat, in the middle of the lake, that's when the storm came. You remember that story? Huge storm, lightning and thunder and all of these amazing things going on. The waves are huge and they're crashing around them everywhere. And I love the way the old King James says it because it's just so understated and it's language we don't use anymore. It says, and the winds were contrary. <laughs> uh, what a great way to say that. The next time we have a tornado in Oklahoma, go out on your porch and make a little TikTok video that says, hey, look, the winds are contrary and see what people say to that. That'd be crazy. But uh, the winds were contrary, and it says that Jesus, they're scared, the disciples, they're, they're terrified, and it says they see this guy walking past them on the water. There's something you don't see every day. I find it interesting that they thought he was walking past them. In the middle of your suffering, have you ever felt that? God, I did exactly what you told me to do. I went exactly where you told me to go. You said get in the boat, I got in the boat. Here I am in the middle of the storm. And now I need you, and you're just going to walk right on by. And they cried out to Jesus, and he wasn't walking right on by. He was coming right to them. And remember Peter's response to that? Hey, Jesus, that's pretty strange what you're doing out there. If it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat, and I'll walk with you. <laughs> and so, you know, Peter was kind of insolent like that. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks with Jesus on the water. How amazing is that? Right there in the middle of the storm, Jesus shows up in the middle of their suffering, and a miracle takes place. And Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and starts looking around. And again, the suffering happens again because the wind and the waves, they were contrary. And Peter sinks. And once again, Jesus reaches in, grabs Peter, and drops him back into the boat. Jesus climbs into the boat, and the Bible says that he instantly the peace and the calm came, and the, and the disciples worshipped him. I don't think Joe was there with the guitar. I don't think that's how exactly that happened. There wasn't a song or a sermon or a service, but in that moment, they went, wow, Jesus, you put us into the lake that took us right into the middle of the storm. You caused our suffering, and in it, you've refined our faith, and now we worship you because of it. Suffering, it, it reveals your priorities, but it also refines your faith. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it fun. It just makes it meaningful. And so as we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, let's recognize that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and sometimes following him to these good places, to the boundaries where the pleasant lines are drawn, sometimes it puts us right in the middle 
of the storm. And there's some other things we need to see inside this passage as we just kind of keep reading. You know, suffering, it reveals our faith or reveals our priorities. It refines our faith. But as we take a look at this, uh, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, we've lived like the rest of the world long enough. We don't need to do things their way anymore because God's drawn these lines in pleasant places. I don't have to live by the world's rules anymore. The time has passed for us to do that. And here's what they do. Here's what the world does. And sometimes it's what our own sinful natures cry out to do when we're hurting. Remember, hurting people don't react like healthy people. And so we cry out and we try to find solutions to escape our suffering rather than to embrace our suffering. And if we think the way Christ thinks, if we arm ourselves, like verse 1 says, with a way of thinking that's like Christ, that my suffering has meaning, that my suffering has purpose, then suddenly we don't have to think about escaping our suffering. We can think about embracing our suffering. The world tries to escape it, but Christ looks at us and says, let's try to embrace it. And what does that mean to embrace it? Well, look at this first. It means we don't do things the way the world does. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. See, the world, everybody, we, has a, we, we all have a way we deal with the pain in our lives, don't we? We all have a way that we deal with our suffering. And the world says, well, why don't you just drink it out? Hey, why don't you just take this pill? Hey, why don't you just hang out with this group of people? Why don't you just serve this idol? If, you just, if you'll just own enough, if you'll just be influential enough, if you'll just drink enough, if you'll just party enough, all those sufferings will go away. But don't we know that not to be true? It's not that they go away. It's that it's, that, it's like a sedative that makes us numb to it for just a little while. And when the suffering comes back, it comes back in a way that's amplified and so much worse than it was before. And God looks to you and says, I know it hurts, but your, your hurt has purpose. It has meaning, and I can help you through it. Don't do it their way. Don't try to cover it up with, with drinking and drugs and with, with parties and with pleasure and with all of those things that are temporary and passing. Instead, embrace it and learn from me those pleasant places where those lines are drawn and walk with me through this gracious place that I've given you and you'll see something miraculous on the other side. Uh, one year ago today, so last year, at this time, I had covid and I was one of those ones where it got kind of bad for me. And it was one year ago today, actually on this day, that it got bad enough that I had to go into the hospital. And I was only there for three days. What they did in the hospital was really effective and it was really helpful. And my, my symptoms for COVID, you know how COVID is with the symptoms. It's always weird and varied. I only had one and it was that I couldn't breathe. I just was gasping for breath. And Londa would tell the story that she would watch me fall asleep and stop breathing. And then I would wake up when I would gasp for breath. And it was, I've, I've never been that miserable in my life. It was terrible. And I'm so thankful for the graciousness of what God's done in my life. But I remember on the day she took me into the ER. And that was weird and scary because, you know, they wouldn't let people in. So I got to stumble into the ER gasping for breath all by myself when she had to stay in the car. That was weird. And I get in there, and I don't remember much. I really don't remember much about that day. I just remember I got processed into the ER. And at some point... I remember this nurse walked in, and I just remember saying one thing, and I remember because I looked it up later. Um, she said, I'm going to push some Dilaudid into your IV for just a second. Is that okay? And at that point, I'd have said yes to anything because I couldn't breathe. And she, she presses Dilaudid in, and like that fast, I have never felt so good in my life. <laughs> it was, I want a bucket of that. Take the, can I just go home now? That's awesome. Now, I still wasn't breathing. I know that because I relaxed and I felt good. And then I would fall asleep. And then the pulse ox alarm would go off because I stopped breathing. And it would wake me up again. And I'd gasp for breath. And I would think, would somebody please turn that stupid alarm off? I just want to sleep. But you know what Delata did? It didn't fix COVID. It just made me feel really good about it. And temporarily... I found what I thought was relief, but the problem wasn't solved. I think it's interesting that it's called Dilaudid. It's really just a pretty hard narcotic that just makes you feel awesome. But it dilutes the problem that's real. 
rather than solves the problem that re that's real. You know what the world does? The world uses whatever version of Dilaudid meets the moment to deal with their suffering. Sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's drugs, sometimes it's parties, sometimes it's people, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's success, sometimes it's influence. And you know what that really does? It just distracts us from the significance of our suffering. It just distracts us from the purpose that God has for us. It's a temporary fix to a permanent problem. And that breath of life that we need so deeply isn't really solved when we just cover up our problems. And then you know what the world does? When you as a believer decide you're going to address your suffering, you're going to focus on your problems or fixing your problems or going through your problems or drawing that line in pleasant places, when you don't draw the line where they draw the line, that's what verse 4 and 5 says. It says, well, verse 4, with respect to this, <laughs> they're surprised. The world is surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They make fun of you. They ridicule you. So sometimes, I know people who have been persecuted for their faith and, and in this nation, persecution is just really different than persecution in other nations. Persecution for us is suffering for us always far closer to the inconvenience side of the, of the spectrum than it is the genuine suffering side of the spectrum. I went on a mission trip to China a little over 10 years ago, and we helped establish a church in a small, well, there's nothing small there, but in this, in this community in China, and that church became healthy, and it was growing, and there were some Chinese men who were the pastors of that church, and we kept in contact with them, and we sent teams over there to, to help continue that work, and then suddenly it stopped, and those men were gone, and the church was disbanded. And at this point, to this day, we're still not certain what happened. We just know all contact ceased. And we couldn't go back anymore. And they knew who we were, and they stopped saying, oh yeah, we'll let them in. I know some people around the world who, when we talk about suffering for your faith, it's the kind of persecution that leads towards martyrdom and the end of someone's life. And so when we talk about suffering for our faith here, I, I know that our suffering, it still is real, it's still uh, relevant, and, and sometimes it's more than just an inconvenience, sometimes it's legitimate persecution, but the world will ridicule you when you choose to deal with your suffering the way God says rather than the way they say. And the suffering that you face will sometimes be persecution, but sometimes, sometimes it is the tool, the instrument that God is using to reveal your priorities and to refine your faith. And so just practically, as we think about how do we manage our suffering, how do we deal with our suffering scripturally, I'm going to give you three questions very quickly that you can ask to help you work out how do you deal with suffering and, and how do you measure it? How do you think the way God does? And so here's the three questions. It's really very simple. Am I suffering the logical consequences of my own sin? Am I suffering the logical consequences of my own sin? Sometimes, you might even say my own foolish choices. Sometimes we just do stupid things. That happens, right? And sometimes because we do stupid things, we get burned. And when we're suffering the logical consequences of our own sin, the thing we need to do is repent. Please forgive me. It's the idea that, okay, here's the line. I crossed the foolish line. I went way beyond the stupid line. I'm now suffering the consequences of my own sin. Instead of going this way, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn my back on that way. I'm going to go God's way now and do it God's way instead of my way. I'm going to repent. And as I repent, I need to learn some new habits. I need to recognize those triggers. I need to see where the line is so that I don't cross it again. When I was a little boy, my granddad had a remote control car for his generation. It was such a cool thing. It wasn't electronic. He had a steam-powered remote control car. How cool is that? Now, you had this big rod that you would use to steer it, but it had this reservoir where you'd put the water. Underneath the water, you'd put a flame. The flame would cause the water to boil, and that would cause the engine to move, which would allow the car to go. And we would chase that thing all over the driveway and try to steer it around and get it to one another. It was an amazing toy to play with, and it was something my grandfather had, and he helped build. It was cool. And my granddad, only, he only had one rule with, with this thing. He said, hey, Chad, this is awesome. It's a steam-powered vehicle, which means that reservoir right there on the front of the car, it's really, really hot. Don't touch it. I said, okay. And then promptly, when it was my turn to, to run it, I ran it, and I got to the end of it. I just wanted to take it back up to the top of the, to the, top of the driveway. I reached down, and I grabbed it. And guess what happened? <laughs> I burned my hand. It was terrible. It was a bad burn. 
That was me suffering the logical consequences of my foolish choices. You might even say of my sin. Please forgive me, granddad. I'm sorry I did that. And guess what? I never did it again because I learned to create new habits. I, I I drew some new boundaries and I drew them in the right place. So you ought to ask yourself, when you're in the middle of suffering, am I suffering the logical consequences of my sin or of my foolish choices? If so, repent and, and create some new habits. Make some new triggers. Here's the second question. Am I suffering the unfortunate consequences of someone else's sin? Am I suffering the unfortunate consequences of someone else's foolish choices? You know, if we're honest, our sin nature is the unfortunate consequence of the choice that Adam and Eve made. So we live in this fallen world, and every time you fall and scrape your knee, and every time there's an accident, every time there's a mistake made that takes someone life, someone's life or removes someone's limb or, or drastically changes someone's quality of life, every one of those mistakes can be, can be pushed all the way back to the fact that we live in a fallen world and people all around us are sinful and sometimes they make foolish choices and in those foolish choices, they hurt somebody else. And you know what? In the middle of those things, we have to recognize that sometimes my foolish choices hurts other people. Are you suffering? Am I suffering the unfortunate? And unfortunate's really not a strong enough word. And some, at some moments, are we suffering the devastating consequences of someone else's sin? And you know what we must do in those moments? This is so hard. We need to forgive and draw some new boundaries. If I'm suffering the unfortunate consequences or the devastating consequences of someone else's foolish choices, of someone else's sin, Scripture reminds us that I need to forgive. And, and just briefly, I want to remind you that forgiveness is not ever somebody just getting away with it. It's not that. Forgiveness is what happens when I release someone into the hands of God. Now, here's what I know about God. In God's hands, his justice will always be satisfied. So when I forgive, I'm not just letting someone get away with it. I'm actually saying, God, I trust you that the way you deal with this person or this problem or this circumstance, I trust that your justice will always be satisfied. In the Psalms, there are these funny verses, funny verses where David is just mad and he's been hurt, and he prays something that sounds like, God, kill them all and let me be the sword. <laughs> and he just prays that way because he just wants justice to be satisfied. But in the right attitude of his heart, he always ends that with the idea of, God, kill them all, let me be the sword, and I trust you. I don't have to retaliate because, God, your justice will be satisfied. Now, here's what happens. When we forgive somebody else, the same thing happens to them that happens to us, right? God's justice will always be satisfied. And in that satisfaction of justice, either I will receive, because of my own sin, the punishment and penalty that I so richly deserve, or justice will be satisfied because Jesus took the punishment for my sin for me. So for the person who hurt you, for the circumstance that's caused your suffering, for the trauma that you've experienced and the trauma that you feel with great confidence, you can release them into the hands of God and trust that his justice will be satisfied and they may just receive the punishment and penalty of their sin right there into their own lives. And if they don't, the only reason they won't is because just like you and just like me, the penalty and the punishment for their sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. Either way, either way, revenge takes place. Either way, justice is satisfied. 1 John 1, 9, such a familiar verse. It says, if we confess our sin that God is faithful, means he'll fulfill his promise, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you are forgiven of your sin, it's not because you just get away with it. It's because the penalty for your sin is paid by Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And when you forgive someone else, it's because you've released them into the hands of God. Now they no longer hold any sway over you because they're in God's hands. And in God's hands, his justice will always be satisfied. So forgive and draw a brand new boundary.
Just because you've been hurt in the past doesn't mean you have to keep running into the spaces and the places where you've been hurt and do it all over again. Forgive. Let God's justice be satisfied and draw a new boundary. Am I suffering the logical consequences of my own sin? Am I suffering the the unfortunate or the devastating consequences of someone else's sin? Those are good questions to ask to evaluate the nature of your suffering. Here's the third question. Is my suffering the price that I pay to fulfill a significant purpose? Is my suffering the price that I pay to fulfill a significant purpose? Sometimes we, we suffer something because we, I said it reveals your priorities. We've decided that in order to achieve this outcome, I might have to suffer and that suffering will be worth it. Um, when I first came to this church, I was the worship pastor. And that was a long time ago. But I was the worship pastor for about eight years. And, and uh, man, we had so much fun. And the, the musicians and the volunteers who were part of that ministry, they were awesome. And I have so much. I love Joe and I love the musicians that, that are playing today. And they practice so hard. I watch them practice all the time. And it's, I, if you ever get a chance to just listen to them rehearse, it's not just musically exceptional. The heart behind who they are and what they do is just awesome. And I love it. And there was this moment at Christmas when I first came here that we decided that we were going to do a song. It was the Hallelujah Chorus, but it was a Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir arrangement of the, of the, of the Hallelujah Chorus. So classically, it was really, really hard, but it wasn't written like a classical song. It was written by, like a really complicated, really fast uh, jazz song. So lots of complicated chords, really fast, lots of runs in it on the piano. It was just hard. We had an orchestra and a choir and a band, and there was just a thousand moving parts, and it was amazing to see everybody put the practice in to make that song and to make those moments just so incredible. But we had this one rehearsal where uh, we, we came to rehearsal and Betty Holloman was our pianist. And she's so phenomenal. And, and I'm so thankful for her and for her family. She came to rehearsal and she had Band-Aids on her fingers. And I'm like, oh no, Betty, what happened? Are you going to be able to play? She goes, oh, I'm fine. This is, this is nothing. Seriously, Betty, what happened? Oh, well, I was practicing and my fingers started bleeding. She practiced till her fi- fingers bled? That's incredible. And I'm like, surely you need to just kind of take a break and sit up. No, 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 no. I want to do this. It's going to be amazing. And I'm telling you, it was. Her heart behind it was awesome. Her practice behind it was awesome. And somewhere in her heart and her mind, she said, this is the price I'm going to pay to accomplish a significant purpose. I want to encourage, challenge, and inspire the people of my church to worship their heavenly father. And if this is what it takes, if this is what it takes, so be it. I'll do it. And she did. Now, I'm not saying if you're in the band that you're going to have to practice till your fingers bleed. Um, but she was just willing to do that. That's amazing to me. We have a man in our church right now, a young man. His name's Nate. And he is a part of the U.S. military. And right now, he's training to be one of the most elite kinds of soldiers you can be. He's in training for it. Very, very few people actually get through the training. It's amazing to see what they put him through. He called back the other day and was telling us something that he went through his, his trainers put him on a helicopter with the rest of his team, flew him out to the middle of the ocean, uh, and the, the trainer said, now the, the water temperature, air temperature is, is, is below freezing, water temperature is just above freezing. Your mission is two miles that way. Here's your gear, and they pushed him out of the helicopter and said, go fulfill your mission. He swam two miles with his gear, in water that's just barely above freezing. When he got to the beach, his head and face are covered in snow and ice because the air temperature was so cold that everything that was on his head and out of the water would freeze. The most miserable, most difficult thing he says he's ever done in his life. And you know what he did? He crawled up onto that beach, got his gear, and he went and filled it, fulfilled his mission. Because you know what they're teaching him? That it's, it's one thing to be able to get it right when conditions are perfect. But when conditions are at their worst, can you be and do your very best? And in his heart, he's saying, because I've learned this, when things fall apart, I won't. And because I'm not falling apart, lives will be saved. Is my suffering the price I pay for a significant purpose? It might just be. You know, there's a couple of passages of Scripture I want to point us to and remind us of one thing, and then we'll pray. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Peter understood this. Paul 
understood this. Jesus understood this. Listen to the story of Paul's life. Is this suffering the price I pay for a significant purpose? Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul knew what it meant to suffer for Christ. And in Philippians, he tells part of the story again. I've suffered all these things, but I account all these things as loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 12, or chapter 12, look at verse 7. In chapter 12, he keeps going. So to keep me from becoming, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Notice verse 10. This is so important. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Go back to verse uh, 29, excuse me, verse 28 of, of chapter 11. Sometimes we feel so guilty over our anxieties. Sometimes we feel so guilty over the way we think about our suffering. And sometimes that guilt comes from our knowledge of a verse of Scripture. It's in Philippians. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The man who wrote that encouragement also wrote verse 28 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Your suffering, your trauma, your anxieties, God has given us tools to use to think rightly to arm ourselves with a way of thinking about those things that leads to life rather than death, that leads to righteousness rather than wickedness. And it all begins as we surrender to him. Even Jesus himself, as he's approaching the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, looked at God and said, God, if there's any other way than this suffering, please let this cup pass from me. And then he ended with faithfulness. But God if I must bear it so they can receive it, so be it. I don't know what you're suffering today. I don't know what traumas you've faced. I don't know what difficulties and what challenges that you've been through, but I know this. You are surrounded by men and women who love you. And you have a God who cares for you more deeply than anyone could ever imagine. He knows your suffering and he's been there and been through it. Would you be one of those people who says, God, please let this cup pass for me. But if it doesn't, if I must bear your cross to preach it, so be it. If I must bear these burdens to live my life faithfully with my friends and with my family in this community to show the world there's a better way, so be it. Can we be those people in this community, that's the Mission Life Challenge for this week. Don't suffer alone. Talk with someone. Share your burdens with one another. Let's be the people who weep with those who weep. This is something the people of our church do so well, and if you've never experienced it, 
reach out. I'd like to invite everyone to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. In just a minute, I'm going to pray a single verse of Scripture over us. And this altar is going to be open. Men and women are available to pray with you and to talk with you if you need that. If, if coming to an altar is uncomfortable or something you don't want to do, if you need to talk with someone about anything we've discussed today, there's people in the foyer who would be willing to talk with you. And there are people who will be here after the service who would visit with you about anything. But don't go through your suffering alone evaluate your suffering through those questions and ask God to give you the gift of repentance and the capacity for forgiveness. Allow him to help you to remain faithful when things are at their worst so that you can honor him as our best. The verse I'm going to pray over us is Luke 9.23 because it highlights the nature of our suffering so well and at the same time reminds us that the, that the boundaries that God has drawn for us fall in pleasant places. So in our suffering, let's be the people who run passionately through the fields of his forgiveness and grace. Heavenly Father, this I pray. That if anyone wants to follow after you, that they would deny themselves, take up your cross, and follow you. For those in this room who have never drawn close to you, I pray that, that today they would deny themselves, they would take up your cross, and they would follow you. For those of us who have been believers for a long time, whether we're suffering an inconvenience, whether we're suffering anxieties, whether, whether we're suffering the deep traumas of the hurts caused by others and the sin of our own lives, Father, whatever the case may be, I pray that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up your cross, and that we would follow you. And in this invitation, Father, would you bring healing and restoration? Would you bring meaning to the hurts that we face? And would you allow us to be the men and women who represent you well to those who are hurting? We love you, Father, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.